turn our Bibles this morning to Galatians 4, or it's there in your worship folder for you. I thank Dan for filling in, and uh, Fred was, was ill this morning. He's had a tough week with the passing of his sister. Um, and I worked in a church where um, the, the senior pastor would wait till we were at the door, and then he would look at me and go, oh yeah, you're doing the kid's sermon. So, you know, I've got, I'm counting, I've got 12 minutes between that moment and when I have to do the kids' sermon. He'd love to do that. He'd just love to do that. Um, so, Galatians chapter 4, if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the word of God? Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, open our eyes and our hearts to your word. That they would be more than just words on the page, but they would live, be living and sharper than a two-edged sword. They would pierce right to our hearts and souls, Lord. That we would be convicted to the point that we would live them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 21, and I'll read through the first verse of chapter 5. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law... Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but children of the free. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. So, Please have a seat. Now, up to this point, just to remind you, because there's really no mistaking this, uh, no one reading this letter to the churches in Galatia could be confused about Paul's main point. Salvation is by faith alone, not by works. As a result of this, Christians are free from the Old Testament... um, Ordinances, ceremonies, rituals, restraints, uh, restrictions. Now, the moral life, the moral law from the Old Testament still applies to us. You know, do not commit murder, do not uh, commit adultery, do not covet. All those types of things are still in effect, um, and we do them not to earn God's grace uh, or to add any merit to what Christ has already done, but we do it in response to what the Lord has done for us. So the moral law still applies to the believer, but the ceremonial laws, the rituals, uh, they no longer apply. Those were old covenant. And that's Paul's message. But when he gets to our passage here, 
this morning, it, it may seem less clear because all of a sudden he jumps to a portion of specifically Jewish history. Uh, Jewish history, and he uses a word in verse 24, which we don't like to see in Scripture. And I'll explain all this to you in just a moment. Now, verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically, allegorically, or allegorically speaking. The definition of an allegory is veiled language, or a story or poem that can be interpreted to reveal hidden or ulterior meanings. Now, there are some great and classic allegories uh, that probably many of us have read. Pilgrim's Progress, for one, is is the first one that comes up on almost every search uh, that you do for great allegories. Uh, Animal Farm, The Tortoise and the Hare, The Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Flies, The Scarlet Letter, Plato's Republic. These are all allegories. Okay, there's something hidden in them that needs to be revealed, and you have to know certain things before they can be revealed. So to read the word allegory in the Bible at first glance is maybe disconcerting. Why would God use an allegory? For an allegory to communicate anything, we have to know the secret meaning. But there are no secret meanings in the Bible. There's nothing hidden. Everything we have to know for our salvation and godly lives and to glorify God can be known in a simple and plain reading. Now, there are things which are not easily understood. There are things which we classify as mysteries, but the things we have to know are clearly laid out for us there. There are no secret meanings in the Bible, and this is the only place where this word allegor is used. So we have to figure out why, okay? So let's do a little, here's your Greek lesson for the week. Agoro means to speak in public. Alus means another. So when you put these two words together, you have algora, which means to speak of one thing by referring to another thing. There's nothing in the Bible that's necessary or possible for us to know that is hidden or secret. Now remember when we went through the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he was writing uh, a lot in, in opposition to what was called Gnosticism, and the Gnostics felt they had the secret knowledge, and if you came to them, then you could get the real meaning behind the Bible and what they wrote. That's not true, okay? You take scripture at its face value. Now, our interpretation of it, and when we do what's called exegesis, we read out of Scripture. We don't read in the Scripture what we want. It speaks to us, but we do take into consideration the historic context, the setting, um, the grammar, the linguistics of the passage. Is it in a passage that's full of figurative language? Is it full of literal language? Because you don't want to interpret something that in a literal fashion that's clearly in a figurative passage. So you have to take all those things into consideration. So when we look at this, um, the word allegory there is, is, as I said, to speak to one thing by referring to another. So Paul's not giving us an allegory in its classic sense. He's giving us an illustration. He is referring to an Old Testament narrative and an Old Testament historic event and people, and he is making the application into the New Testament, and we'll see that as the passage unfolds. The Old Testament account is historic. We know Abraham, 
Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, the two covenants, it's all laid out for us in the Old Testament. All of that is history. It has its truth in its context. It has its truth which applies further on. Um, So it's clearly seen and understood. So with that, remember what Paul says back in verse 20 of chapter 4. Right there at the end, he says, for I am perplexed about you. Okay, I sit here, I'm writing this letter, and I'm scratching my head about why in the world would you do the things that you're doing when you know the truth, when you know the truth. So he, he continues on in 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Okay, to, to make an application in the world today, I'm running for office. Okay, it's a national office. I'm really, I'm, I'm very popular. I've got a lot of, you know, it's an office with a lot of power. And I say, you know, if you elect me, I'm going to raise your taxes. Okay, it's just going to have to happen. And you elect me, and I raise your taxes, and you scream bloody murder. Oh, so I told you what the truth was, but, and I went and I did it. Well, Paul is like, don't, don't you know about the law? But yet you want to go back to the law. I can't, you know what happens when you're under the law. And he uses the word earlier, he says, who has bewitched you? Who has cast, in a sense, a theological spell on you that you think it's better to try to please God through your actions than relying upon the finished work of Christ? Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, that is not hyperbole when it says all things. If you're going to live under and according to the law, you have to do every little bit of the law and you have to keep it perfectly. And nobody does that. Nobody does that. And if you don't do it, you are cursed. Okay? Deuteronomy 27 says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to perform them. The law demands perfection. Jesus told the Pharisees on the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect for your Father in heaven is perfect. So Paul's question to the Galatians, do you want to go back to the law that demands perfection? And if you're not perfect, you're going to be cursed and that curse is an eternal curse. Are you sure you want to do that? you sure you want to do that? Now, as he lays out his illustration here, we have to ask a question. Remember, Paul's writing to Gentile churches. Okay? They don't have a Jewish history. So when he gives them all of this, all these Jewish individuals, all of this history, we have to ask, well, did they understand it? Well, I'm pretty sure that they did because when Paul is preaching, what's he using to preach? He's using the Old Testament. Remember, the, the, our understanding of justification by faith alone comes right out of the Old Testament. It's in several places. Specifically, it's in Habakkuk. Okay? And then that's, Habakkuk is quoted three times in the New Testament, the just shall live by faith. Okay? Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So we see this doctrine laid out for us in the Old Testament. He had been preaching that from the Old Testament passages, so they're going to be aware of these characters and these individuals from the Old Testament teachings. So Paul says, are are you listening to the law? The law is just going to put you under bondage. It's going to make you slaves. And here's the illustration. 
For it was written, Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, one by a free woman. The son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman according to the promise. Now, you can uh, look this up uh, this week in your own devotions, Genesis 15, and and we're going to get to that in just a moment. I'm going to summarize this history for you. But remember, the Judaizers who were bringing this teaching in here were boasting that they were children of Abraham. We are children of Abraham. And, um, well, if you belong to Christ, you're children of Abraham because of your faith. Remember, uh, Jesus says, you know, God can make sons of Abraham out of these stones. Okay, it's no big thing to be a son of Abraham. But to be a true son of Abraham, you have to have faith. And he's saying you have to have faith in Christ. So Abraham had two children, Ishmael first, Isaac second. Ishmael through the bondwoman or the slave Hagar, and Isaac, the child of the promise, through Sarah, the free woman. So one father, two different mothers, one a slave, one free, one done according to the flesh, one done according to the promise. So here's a summation of Genesis 15. And you, as I said, you can check this out uh, this week and, and get the whole 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. I'd, I'd read all of those chapters of Genesis this week. So the word of the Lord comes to uh, Abraham in a dream. It says, don't be afraid. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Now, now we all know this. We've been in Sunday school. You, you understand this. You tell me I'm going to be the father of a great nation, Abe says, but he says, I don't have any kids, okay? And I'm old. So old people, he says, not that old people don't have children, but when you're my age, you don't have children. And when you're Sarah's age, you don't have children. The only one in my house that might fit this is Eliezer. He's, he's from Damascus. He's a servant. So he says, I'm going to make Eliezer my heir. And God says, no. That's a human solution to a problem that I have promised to solve for you. Okay, so Eliezer's out. So the word of the Lord says, no, this man will not be your heir, but one who comes forth from your own body. And Abraham's, what is he, like 90 at this time? And he's like, you're asking a lot there, Lord. You're telling me something that's really uh, unbelievable. And God takes him outside to illustrate it. He says, look up. Now, we, we don't have this luxury here unless you, go, unless you have a, a way to get out in the woods and away from all the, the light that shines just in our natural world here with all the street lights and the car lights and everything. You look up and you see the stars. If you've been out in the woods or out camping, you can look up and you forget how many stars are up there. Okay? It is fantastic when you're out away from the light of civilization. And he says, I want you to look up there. That's how many your descendants are going to be. Well, that's a lot. When Abraham goes, but I don't have any kids yet, Lord. So what is it that you're going to do here? The Lord says, I'm making you a promise, and you have to believe. And Abraham said, I'm going to believe. And righteousness was imputed to him, even though there was no possible human way that this could happen. None at all. And what does God do? Is Sarah, like, with child the next day? No. And I don't know whether, um, it doesn't say why God waits so long. But perhaps it is to instill in Abraham, my timing is perfect. 
Uh, I mean, how many of us have said, Lord, this needs to happen like this week? And it doesn't happen. And you, Lord, did, were you not listening to me, Lord? Uh, <laughs> a dangerous thing to say. Um, of course he is, but he's, my timing is perfect. So uh, a long time goes by here. And, and maybe it is this extra proof to Abraham and Sarah that only God can provide what he has promised. So chapter 16 rolls along in Genesis. And Sarah, she's, uh, she's reached the limit of her patience. Okay? And remember, not having a child in this day was a, a terrible thing. Not having a son was a terrible thing. Sarah's got neither. So she says, hmm, what if I send Hagar, my slave, into Abraham, and they have a son, and then I can have that, that son will be mine. Okay, remember, slaves were just property. Um, but she has reached the point where she doubts God's word to such an extent that she is willing to encourage, push her husband into adultery to get the outcome that she thinks God wants her to have, even though he said it's a child of the promise, not a child of the flesh. Abraham listened to Sarah's voice, showing how little he trusted God. Sarah didn't trust God. Abraham didn't trust God. So Ishmael is born. And things go from bad to worse. Sarah's angry at Hagar. Hagar's angry at Sarah. Nobody believes God is going to do anything. Uh, It just all deteriorates because man has interjected himself in an attempt to fulfill what God has promised to do. Ishmael is an illustration of the flesh. Okay? The promise was clear. If God was going to give Abraham a son, it was going to have to be supernatural. Abraham and Sarah don't want to wait on that. They're impatient. They don't think God is going to fulfill what he promised, so they do it their way. So the flesh rejects or does not wait on the promise of God and tries to take over what God said he would do. So by the time... Isaac comes along. Abraham's 100. Sarah's 90. All right. So, you know, we, whenever we talk about this, we, we think, just, just think of yourself as a 100-year-old individual having a child, okay, as a man, or a 90-year-old woman um, having a, a baby. You know, you show up at over at Women's and Children at 90 saying, well, I'm in labor. They're not going to believe you, okay? They're just not going to believe you. But the two sons here, now this is, this is the, the spiritual aspect here, the two sons became a, spat, a pattern for spiritual truth. Ishmael represents those who try to get to God on their own. I'm going to work my way, I'm going to do it my way. God, I know God will be pleased with my efforts to make it right with him. Salvation by works. Ishmael symbolizes the attempt by anyone to accomplish what God wants by their own works works of the flesh. Isaac was born as a result of the promise of God. What could not happen humanly happens. Okay? So God miraculously enabled Abraham and Sarah to bear Isaac. So Isaac is the child of the promise, the result of the power of God. So the Holy Spirit caused what was naturally impossible to happen in a supernatural way. Ishmael, those who attempt to work their way to heaven, 
Isaac represents salvation by faith alone. So you can see where Paul is going with this now, with this illustration. Okay, You want to go back to Ishmael when you've got Isaac. Why would you, who are children of the promise, attempt to accomplish the purposes of God through flesh? Verse 24. This is the, the interpretation. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. That's Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Rejoice, O barren ones who do not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, he's he's talking to the church of Galatia here, you who are in Christ, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now. See, our unwillingness to wait on God has consequences, just like it did here. Sarah hated Hagar, Hagar hated Sarah, Hagar hated Isaac, Ishmael hated Isaac, and Abraham's, uh, I don't know, we've got two sons, I love them both, okay? There's animosity, there's persecution, it says very clearly, um, the sons of those in flesh, those who are trying to work their way into heaven, will persecute those who are trusting in faith alone. That is, all false religions will persecute the Christian faith. It's just this is what it says. It's the promise. They will continue to persecute the children of Isaac and Sarah, children of the promise, those who trust in Christ alone, grace alone, through faith alone. And the greatest persecutor of the church is false religions, cults, sects. Um, think of every big false religion, Islam, uh, secularism, which is basically religion, um, uh, atheists. Why, why do atheists get so worked up about something they don't believe in? You know, they don't believe exists. Maybe it's just us, but, um, you know, so the, we cannot give lip service to sin as believers, as those who trust in Christ. Um, and we can't say, well, yeah, you know, this is the world we live in, and we just have to adjust to modern society. We've got to adjust to modern ethos and mores and, and uh, just go along with it. We're not going to give it credence, but we're, we're just going to go along with it. And Paul says, all who live godly in this present age will suffer persecution. And you think, well, I didn't sign up for that. Yeah, you did. When God changed your heart, when he, he moved in your life with the grace of Christ... You are guaranteed salvation. You're guaranteed that you will suffer for your faith. Now, you, weren't, you won't suffer persecution if you look like the rest of the world. If you just look like the rest of the pagan world, you'll get along fine. Okay? But there's that passage, gee, that passage in Revelation 3 about Laodicea that says, If you're neither hot nor cold, what's, what am I going to do? I'm going to spit you out. And it's a spew out. Okay. Now, Paul quotes Galatians 21, and, and we have read that. And Ishmael's got to go. 
That's the final verdict. Now, why does Ishmael have to go? At the end of 30 here, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. A theology of salvation by works cannot coexist with a salvation by grace alone. They cannot. One is man-oriented, man-centered, man-efforted, and the other is a complete reliance upon grace, upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant, look, look here, Mount Sinai, where the law came, Arabia, present Jerusalem, uh, all those things, slavery, all those things are represented here. Jerusalem, uh, at, at this time, still, you know, still a Jewish stronghold there in a sense. But we're talking about something else. We're talking about the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that resides in heaven. We're talking about the work of Christ. In the Old Testament, it was all, um, you shall. Okay, you shall do this, you shall not do this. In the New Testament is I will, and the I wills are Christ. I will do this for you. I will give my life for you. I will pay the penalty for your sin. That's the work of Christ. And it is so hard for us to get our minds around that, that he would do that for us. I mean, just think think about yourself for a moment. Why in the world would the creator of all things, who has all power, all authority, who is all righteousness, no sin resides in him, that he would look upon you and I with such love and say, you are mine and I'm going to give you my son and he's going to pay the price for your sin. And I'm going to put the weight of all the sin of those who are mine upon him. That's a love that is just beyond our capacity any example in this world, but our capacity to understand. But it is here laid out for us in Scripture. And when we trust in him, what is the result? Chapter 5, which which we covered next week, for freedom Christ has set us free. We are the children of Isaac. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back to slavery. You're free. You are free in Christ. Why in the world would you want to go back to any structure that says you have to earn your way into God's grace when it is freely given in Christ? That is the good news of salvation. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, this... This is not just the good news. It is the best news. It is the greatest news. There's not a modifier strong enough to give it justice. The good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel. Good news that Christ has given his life for us that we might know salvation. That we who are tainted by sin in every aspect of who we are and what we do, we might be the recipients of this grace which washes us clean. The atoning blood of Christ shed for us that we might be able to come into the presence of the one 
who is all righteousness and all justice and all holiness, and come right to the throne of grace. And you look upon us not as who we are, but you look upon us as we are in Christ. This is a gift that is beyond our capacity to understand, but yet here it is, given to we who don't deserve it, and now we're called to give it away to those who need to hear of this life-changing message of the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 169, What Wondrous Love Is This? We'll sing verses 1, 2, and 3 before communion. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 169.
We can't come here if we think I can earn my way into heaven. That negates this. It negates the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It negates of his giving his body for us. It's ne- it negates um, it, when he says it is finished on the cross. When he says no man takes my life, I lay it down. It negates all that. It negates the shedding of his blood for the atonement of our sin. Atonement is the washing, the cleansing of that sin from us. So we have to put out of our minds, and that's what Paul is telling the Galatians, you, you can't earn your way to heaven. And, and again, it's just not the way that we think. What should I do? And, and so often the people come to Christ and say, what should I do to inherit the kingdom? Do, do, do. Oh. Receive. Be changed by his grace. Then you do things for his glory. Then you do things to give him praise and honor. But Christ has done for us here. And he invites us to come to the table to remind us of that. And we come as sinful men and women. And uh, our sin, portion of our sin still remains. It's not like it's washed away completely. Not till we stand before the throne of grace will we be without sin. But he says, yeah, I know who you are. I know what you're like. I know what your hearts are like. But I want you to come. And I want you to receive this. Because here in these common elements, this, the bread and the cup, something uncommon happens. God's grace is, is demonstrated to us here in these things. Just come and receive that feast upon this. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come today and, and we are far from perfect, but you love us anyway. Not only do you love us, but you call us. You say, come to the table. Eat what I have provided for you. It is a meal that goes far beyond that one bite and that one sip. It goes to our very hearts. It goes to the very change that Christ has brought to our lives. His sacrifice, this, this sign points to so much more than what it is. And it is here that our hearts need to be, that we need to be. Lord, we are imperfect, and we come with sin upon our hearts. Perhaps it is uh, anger that we have held, bitterness, jealousy. Um, Perhaps it is things we have said, things we have heard, things we have seen, or could could be anything. But you, you say when we seek forgiveness, when we confess and repent, you remember our sins no more far as the east is from the west. So Heavenly Father, we're going to take a moment of silent prayer that we might confess our sins to you. Father, these brief moments are probably hardly enough for us to confess all our sins to you. We seek your forgiveness for those things we have done, those things we have left undone, those things we have
purposely pursue those things we did not pursue that we should have. Lord, wipe us, wipe us clean with your blood that we might come to the table with hearts that are right, hearts that are full of love, compassion, joy, and the peace that passes all understanding. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So all who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are welcome to come to the table. Now, what we'll do is the elders will stand up front and we'll invite you to come down the center aisles, take from the trays. They'll give you the words of institution. This is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins. Go out the sides, take them back to your seats, hold them, and we will take them all together. Okay? So on the night that he was betrayed, after praying, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Then in a like manner, he took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. My blood that has been shed for you. So as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until his return. So today, let us show the Lord's death and let us feast on what he has provided for us.
Our Heavenly Father, what a feast that you've laid before us. Simple and small, but a feast for our hearts and a feast for our souls. Only made possible because of the sacrifice that Christ made. That we too may know his love and his mercy. What wondrous love is this. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing verse 4 of hymn 169. Let's stand together and sing. Thank <clears throat> you. 